You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Thanks for tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. I am tired of the new myth that Latinos don't vote. This narrative hurts how candidates appeal to our community. We also want to examine why Latinas do or don't run for office. To help us burst through these myths and to get to some facts, we're joined by two experts. At the top of the show, we're going to talk to Michelle Leal, who is a board member of the Texas Latino PAC. She's also run for office. She's going to give us her view about deciding to run, as well as some of the pros and cons of being in a competitive race. Second half of the show, we're going to talk to Hector De Leon, the author of Hector De Leon's Perspective. He is an expert on quantifying voting patterns. We also want to address some current news that deeply affects our community. In the case of Vanessa Guillen, Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy has agreed to appoint a panel to investigate how the case of Vanessa Guillen has been handled at a Texas military post, according to Texas Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia, who is a friend of the show, who made history as one of the first Tejanas to serve in Congress. She made that announcement along with leaders from LULAC, including the president of LULAC National, Domingo Garcia, who was on our premiere program. We applaud all the activists and community members who are demanding justice for Vanessa Guillen. We also want to keep an eye on another story. In a recent press conference with Telemundo, President Trump hinted that in an upcoming executive order, he would provide relief or support for DACA recipients. He would not give more specifics, but he did say that a executive order regarding immigration was looming. Some folks are excited because this could bring some much needed relief for a lot of members in our community. Other members of the community remind us that they've been down this road before. In one press conference, President Trump praised DACA recipients and said they were exemplary of good behavior and merit-based immigration. And then in the next press conference, he turned around and villainized DACA recipients. We really hope that this is not a way to play with the Latino electorate and the lives of so many members of our community. We will keep an eye on this. And lastly, there's a national boycott on Goya products after the head of corporate Goya zealously lauded President Trump Critics pointed out that it seems hypocritical for the corporate head of a company that has tailored its products to the nostalgic tastes of an immigrant population and then would turn around and cater to an administration that has villainized immigrants through different policies, including separation of families, the ending of DACA, and most recently, threatening to deport F1 visa students. The Goya boycott has taken off across the country. We will keep you posted. But it brings to mind the old adage, do not bite the hand that feeds, which in this case should be adapted to, do not bite the hand that seasons with your products. Thanks for tuning into Latino Politics and News. A stone, a stone. 
Esto es un party por debajo del agua Baby busca tu paraguas Estamos bailando como peces en el agua Como peces en el agua Agua. No existe la noche ni el día Aquí la fiesta mantiene encendida Siempre que pasa me guiña Dulce como piña Esto es un party por debajo del agua Baby busca tu paraguas Estamos bailando como peces en el agua como pues en el agua Eso es así, debajo del sol Vamos pa' el agua que hace calor Dice que me vio en el televisor Y que me reconoció, no fue un error Y te conozco calamardo Dale sonríe que bien la estamos pasando Y estamos al cari, montamos el party Estamos en bikini con todas las mami Puedo estar debajo del mar Y debajo del mar tú me vas a encontrar Desde hace rato veo que quiere bailar Michelle Leal is a community leader and communication strategist with over 15 years of experience in the public, nonprofit, and corporate sectors. Her professional experience and community involvement has centered around the passion for Latino community empowerment, women's rights, and LGBTQ equality. She's a current board member and past co-chair of Latino Texas PAC, where she works to engage the next generation of leaders in Texas politics. She's also an advisory board member for this show, Latino Politics and News. She's run for office and supported several candidates. We wanted to get her firsthand experience. Let's start by talking about why you ran. And I should point out to folks that you come from a family that has deep roots of the community. You are Chicana legacy because of your father's work in the judicial field. Tell us a little about him and what role that may have played in your decision to run. I've always been, like you said, very politically involved because of my family and because of my parents' involvement. And, um, you know, more important, I think, to my dad than his uh, service on the bench was the opportunity that it presented to him to mentor a lot of people and encourage people to run. And um, one of those people was, was Gracie Sines, who, as we know, was our first Latina uh, at-large council member here in the city of Houston. And, um, you know, that was just something that he really enjoyed is being able to mentor and, and guide and help others that were interested in public service and uh, something that he passed on to me. And so I have always taken on that role and kind of played a behind-the-scenes role and been very involved with Latino Texas PAC as a co-chair and a longtime board member and have helped and supported a lot of candidates and always was very comfortable doing it from behind the scenes. But this opportunity presented itself and it just really was the right opportunity at the right time. And I was, I was so concerned about what this vacancy in the, in the current kind of circumstances and voting demographics in, in House District 148 meant for the district and for uh, Latino representation in the district because the seat was created as a Latino opportunity seat and has always been held by a Latino and has been held by a Latina now for more than 25 years. And so I was really concerned about losing that representation. And that was one of the biggest motivating factors for me. And I think this is a great scenario to break down because your family knew it's important to be involved at different levels of the community. You also had an awareness of how the political system works. And this was a case where you said, okay, this is happening now. But let's break that down. So you mentioned it was a state rep seat. But tell us about the circumstances, because they weren't ideal. No, certainly not. Um, there wasn't any time to plan or prepare and there is that's one of the biggest pieces of advice that I give people that are thinking about running is really spending a lot of time planning and preparing for that 
Um, but no, this this vacancy was created when Representative Farrar unexpectedly announced her retirement um, and uh, was going to retire with an unexpired term. And so it triggered a special election. So essentially, it was an eight week uh, special election last fall, and it was just going 100 miles an hour the entire time. And it was really, really intense. And I had about less than two weeks from the day she actually announced to the the filing deadline um, to make a decision, which isn't the ideal circumstance. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing from anxiety. <laughs> yes, but you know, on the on the flip side, it it sort of pushes you. You know, I had that pressure of I need to decide. You know, am I going to continue to stand on the sidelines and encourage other people to do this, or uh, am I willing to do the thing that I'm encouraging others to do and to make that sacrifice as well? And even just in that answer, there's a lot wrapped up in it, in that, right, do folks wait? Let's see, right now, we're about to have general elections in November, so perhaps there's seats that are two years away, four years away. Do they move quickly when that opportunity presents itself, like you say, you had two weeks? And additionally, let's break down the rest of those races, because it wasn't just that race, it would lead to other possible races after that describe that scenario because that was also pretty daunting sure and, we're, and specific to house district 148 you mean yes uh, yes so you know it was everyone was saying just do it just do it you know it's eight weeks you any, you can do anything for eight weeks right and so just just go for it and um you know i said that's it's uh, i appreciate the encouragement but when you look at it it's eight weeks it could turn into you know almost a year and and that's really what has happened because there was a special election there were um 14 15 of us that ran um and then there was of course a runoff after that special election and then there was a primary election and then a primary runoff. And of course, now with this pandemic, that has been delayed. And then there will be a general election in November that is less <laughs> intense because it is a, uh, you know, it's 70 percent Democratic district. So it's very unlikely that a Republican would win. But um, but yes, that race, I guess the outcome of that race is still technically not been finally decided. And so that will be decided um, here, you know, in a couple of days. That's topsy-turvy. And again, we can't even delve into every single aspect of that issue. We're talking about a Hispanic opportunity district that might not wind up held by uh, uh, someone who's Latino. We're also talking about all those different races crunched into one. We're talking about not having time to plan. And then what was the turning point where you said, okay, I'm going to lean in. You've had the two weeks to talk about, think about it. What was the deciding factor? You know, um, I think it was a couple of things. I think one was the amount of encouragement and support and guidance I had from uh, close friends and mentors. And a lot of my uh, colleagues at Latino Texas PAC were just really so helpful in pushing me to make that decision. And in some who uh, are a little bit older and had a little bit more political expertise and experience than me saying, you know, this is why I think you should do it. And here's how I can, here's how I want to help you. And then those who were younger than me looking at me and saying, you know, if you do it, I feel like maybe one day I would do it. And I think that made a huge difference. And then even outside of that group, you know, other 
uh, organizations and community groups that I'm involved with, and, and particularly with young Latina women. And um, I mentor uh, some women through the Latinas Achieve program at U of H downtown. And, and some of those young women, just hearing them say that to me, that, well, you know, maybe I should consider that. And, and having them come and be a part of the campaign and all that was really special to me and really helped me get to the place of making that decision that, you know, if, if I do it, whether I'm successful or not, to me, it's a success to know that a number of other people are then going to turn around and do it because they, they feel now that they have that confidence and comfort level. That's wonderful. And let's call that a think tank because you had a lot of minds to pick from wisdom, different age groups. So that's fantastic. It sounds like because you're able to bounce ideas off and really get an informed decision. That sounds fantastic. I like to think that that's how community works. Was that part enjoyable? That part, I think, was was really great. And I mean, I honestly, if I didn't have that support network and if there wasn't an organization like Latino Texas PAC, I, I certainly would not have worked. And, um, you know, that, that made a huge difference for me. And I hope that that's, you know, that's why we're there and that's why we were founded really in, in fairly recent years because we just felt that there was a void there for a support network for Latino candidates. And that is part of why we've decided not to be a partisan organization because, you know, the, the Latino community, um, in a lot of our opinion is, is, not really uh, appreciated and taken into consideration by either political party in a lot of ways. And so um, we, we wanted to stand apart from that and say we are here to support and to lift up and to encourage Latinos to run for office. And let's stick with the good feelings. So what were some of the highlights <laughs> during the, this marathon run? I mean, I think one of the biggest highlights was that and just, you know, the the ways in which people showed up and, and supported me. Um, for me, you know, campaigns, and unfortunately, I hate, you know, the way that the money plays such a big role in politics. And, and I probably wouldn't have had a whole lot of friends um, on in either party if I had made it to the legislature because I would have been advocating for such strong uh, campaign finance and ethics reform that no one would have liked me. But, uh, you know, I think that is the way it is right now. And so, um, you know, in that time frame, there was a need to really raise a tremendous amount of money. But then also in order to be effective in such a short time frame to get that message out and to be able to get in front of as many voters as possible as quickly as possible to utilize a lot of volunteers. And so I was really proud to be the campaign that both outraised any other candidate, but also outworked any other candidate in the sense that we had more volunteers in, you know, individual numbers and then also volunteer hours contributed. And we were out knocking doors every single weekend and we knocked on thousands of doors in the district in in a week time span. So that was a really cool thing to be able to accomplish. And on the flip side, what were some of the hardest aspects? Because some of it's not glamorous. Some of it is very much hard work. Oh, it's awful. And, um, you know, it is, it's a ton of hard work and the hard work is, is not the worst part of it. And the hard work, I think, you know, you have to be willing to work hard to accomplish anything that you really want that, that badly. But, um, the, just the ugliness of politics right now, um, the role that I think social media plays in that. And so the things that people see, I know it's right now I'm watching what's playing out with this pandemic and, and, Judge Hidalgo and the way that she's being attacked and the way that her leadership is being undermined. 
And it makes me so angry and it makes me cringe because I know that there are young Latina women looking at that and it's making them pause and say, would I really want to subject myself to that? And so my answer to them is, yes, I think you should. And I think, you know, it's worth it. You get through it and you go, okay, I can handle anything because I've already been, I've been through this. I've taken a beating, you know, but, um, and I think, you know, I've had some conversations with her recently about, you know, what she would say to other young women. And I think that um, she would say the same, you know, that it is definitely worth it. And those are some of the sacrifices, unfortunately, you have to make in order to serve your community. But it is rough, uh, you know, and you, you definitely have to be able to to take some hits and to uh, deal with a lot of challenging situations and a lot of personalities, to be honest, you know, when you're out in the community uh, talking with people. And so it is, it's, it's, difficult and it can be very contentious and it can be hard I think to know who to trust at any given moment in any given situation I think it's so important to have really strong mentors that you know that you can wholeheartedly trust we had chatted before after I had written an essay called allowed to prosper but not rule we chatted about a couple quotes from that essay one is we're successful at this time because we're allowed to prosper we are not allowed to rule. Those who rule have generational wealth so they can do both. Because right. whoever decides to go in this lane is putting all that at risk. Reflect a little bit on that because we both kind of commiserated that this seems to be our conundrum at the time. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that up because when I looked at this race and I looked at all the names that were being floated of folks that were considering running, there were other... Latinas who I thought were very competent and and who would have been great candidates that have done a lot of work in this community and in this district that ultimately weren't in a position to run because of some of those reasons, you know, financial reasons and, you know, just other kind of economic situation. And so I think that that's really important. And that is part of what pushed me is that, okay, I was in you know, I was fortunate to be in a place where that wasn't something that was going to hold me back. And so I felt like I had to do it. You know, I felt like it was a sort of a responsibility because, um, you know, it, it, to me, it doesn't seem fair that those women couldn't do it because of their financial circumstances. And we should point out to folks that Texas state representatives make $3,700 a year. I understand there's some money for gas probably <laughs> yes it's definitely a part-time job I mean if it were up to me I would probably I think that it's you know it definitely requires more than part-time work if you're doing it right and and I think that you know I'd probably like to see it just be a full-time job and then some some much more stringent restrictions on the kind of outside work that people could do I think that would eliminate a lot of conflicts of interest um, you know, and, and help level the playing field a little bit. But yes, it is a, a very, very underpaid part-time job. So nobody is doing it for the money, that's for sure. And the other thing, too, is I've, I've gotten in arguments with some people because then they try and say, well, the Latino community needs to understand the role of giving back. But they're wrong in that, in my opinion, they should be saying whenever they ask, why don't Latinos or Latinos run? It's the same question to me as, why don't more Latinos and Latinas become poets? In that, <laughs> you're picking a path right. <laughs> deliberately that you're skilled at. 
you know the returns, but you're giving up a lot as well. Because then also, it's not just how much it pays per year. You mentioned connections. You mentioned other aspects as well. Let's talk about that because to win the election, you've got to have all these other layers of cultural capital and capital. What might some of those be that people aren't aware of, do you think? Especially... It may be knowing people who are really smart with PhDs or maybe knowing people who can donate $5,000, $10,000 to a campaign. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think that's really important. And I think, you know, it, it, it is I, I think that's probably an incorrect assumption. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of challenges and obstacles that the Latino community faces that people don't take into consideration. And especially when you're looking at families where, you know, someone is a first generation uh, American, then, you know, they're not thinking about, like you said, necessarily what they can do first and foremost to give back to their community, not because they don't care about it, but because they have to think about how they can build sustainability and a future for the generation that came before them and, you know, for their own families. And, and so, it's just different circumstances. And I think that um, Latinos are very sort of family centric and community centric. And I think that they do a ton to support each other, but it, you know, they're just met with different challenges. And then of course, when you win Texas state rep, then you have to run every two years. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's, it really is. It's, it's not it is a scenario that is designed to give more power to money in politics when you're constantly having to campaign and you're constantly having to fundraise and you know like you just referenced earlier i mean if you're you're um coming from an immigrant immigrant family and you don't come from means and you are you know working very very hard to be able to achieve your educational goals and your professional goals, you may not have the same network of people that, that can give, you know, in, in that capacity to a campaign. And then, um, you know, the running every other year, it really, it designs it so that those who are in the seats are able to stay in them, whether they're doing a good job or not. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it makes it challenging for, um, for new people to run and to break through and, so I think there's there's probably a lot that could be done better around, you know, money and politics. And I just don't know. I don't know that the appetite is there for changing it because, you know, those that are in power have to be able to have to be willing to essentially give up some power in order to make those changes. In a system they've just gained entry to. Right. And have figured right. Out, um, right. Impetus isn't there to revolutionize that system and they probably wouldn't get all the votes and support. So, you know, I, I guess we won't go down that rabbit hole. Right. Let's go back to positive aspects. So you're on the, you're on a pack to help other folks run for office. You also mentor uh, young women. So what are some other ways that we can help inspire other folks to run? You know, I think it's just so important to, be able to offer advice and offer guidance and to find situations where you can get in front of young people and you can have dialogue with them. I I found it really disheartening 
when uh, through Latino Texas PAC and through, I don't know if you've had him on your show, but a, a former uh, candidate also for Houston City Council, Raj Sohotra, um, the nonprofit organization that he founded, we were able to do, you know, a mentorship event where we just came together one evening and ordered pizza and, and, and got together with some of the students in the program and talked to them and answered questions. And it was such a bummer to hear this young man say that, you know, that they don't, he doesn't really pay any attention to politics or really care about it because he doesn't think that anyone there is actually talking to him or, um, you know, that it's going to make a difference. And I think that the more situations that, that we can create where uh, young high school and college students like that see candidates that, that look like them, that they still represent them, that share their experiences um, and that are actually willing to talk to them and, and more importantly to listen to them and to hear what it is that they're concerned about, um, the more I think that you get those, those people engaged. And I think if you can engage you know, young voters, then that's, that's a really cool thing. And it's, it's kind of a key to changing you know, the future of Latino representation. That's fantastic. And we appreciate when you do that. We appreciate you being an advisory board member for Latino Politics and News. And I think I like that activity anyway. So I, I kind of want to stress that that sort of relationship is like being a teacher, community organizer, kind of mixing with other demographics. So that, that is fun. And, and that maybe is the best part of politics, community organizing, and, and so forth. Um, let's close out with this last question. So are you going to run again? <laughs> are you... <laughs> Well, you're, you're you know, it's, it's, today. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have to say, you know, I would be foolish to say never twice because I, I always said never before and then I ended up doing it. So <laughs> I'm not going to say never, but, um, I don't have any immediate plans to do so, but I'm not ruling it out. I'm, I'm open to it. And, you know, now very eyes wide open, I know what it's like and what I'd be getting myself into. Um, so that's, definitely helpful there's so much learning you know there's just such a learning curve when you're a first-time candidate and and so you know i'm open to it but um but i'm you know it, it just depends on um where the opportunity is to serve the community and if that makes sense for me and for the community then then that's something i'd be open to considering um but with that said you know like i said there's just a huge learning curve and and i think it's so important to have guidance to have mentors and so i if there are you know, Latino, Latina candidates, especially young Latinas out there that are thinking about it and they have questions and they want to ask them, feel free to reach out to me. I am happy to answer those questions and to give advice. Um, you know, I love doing that and I, I hope to be able to continue to be able to do that so that, you know, they can they can have whatever, you know, questions they need answered and, and have uh, the comfort level that they need to be able to make the right decision and potentially be able to go on and serve their community. Thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. We've been chatting with Michelle Leal, who's also an advisory board member for Latino Politics and News. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we're going to take a very close look 
into a narrative that has evolved, which basically is trying to make it sound like Latinos are not involved in elections. And I want to dispel that myth. It's just not accurate. However, there's probably more to it than just that. To get us to the bottom of this, we're speaking to Hector De Leon. By day, he is a senior election official and public information officer for the Harris County Clerk's Office. And he's joining us today as the author of Hector De Leon's Perspective, where he writes about Latino voter participation in Harris County. And he's also joining us as an advisory board member of Latino Politics and News. So welcome. Thank you uh, for the invitation. I think it's a good opportunity to, to discuss a very important subject as we go into a very important election year. You distinguish yourself by leading the crisis management after a fire destroyed all the county's voting equipment 67 days before Election Day in 2010. Let's start with talking about that, Hector. Remind us about that incident. And if you heard me giggle just now, I'm giggling from anxiety. Okay, So that sounds like that had to be a really challenging moment. Uh, it was. It all started uh, like early in the morning. I think it was a Thursday or Friday, 4, 4, 4.30 in the morning, I got a call <laughs> on my personal cell. One of those from, calls. <laughs> from the news media. And uh, I think it was I think it was uh, Channel 11. And uh, they wanted us, to, somebody represented from the office, county clerk's office, to go on there and confirm that the elections warehouse, where we keep all the voting equipment, uh, was indeed burning to the ground <laughs> and uh so they wanted us to confirm the short of the story is that that i couldn't confirm it because they gave me the wrong address <laughs> they said this is the address we have i said well i can't confirm it because that's not the address of the warehouse but eventually we did confirm that it was it was uh it burned down and uh, it provided a great challenge for the election staff because we were 67 days away from election day and i believe 50 four days away from when early voting was scheduled to begin for the uh, 2010 midterm elections. Wow. The people don't understand that the planning for an election begins way ahead of that. So we were 67 days before election day and we already had a plan for the election. And uh, uh, it was just a matter of implementing the plan and an important cog to that or component to the implementation of plan is election machines. You need election machines to conduct an election. So uh, that's what <laughs> burned down. We had the plan, but we, we lost the machines. So immediately we said, you know what? Uh, we're going to keep our plan. Our uh, The goal is to uh, the mail balloting process was not impacted. Uh, the early voting process, we, uh, we are confident that we can have enough machines electronic voting machines that we utilize to vote in person enough to conduct early voting as scheduled with the, as many locations that we as we said we're going to have and same thing for election day so uh um that was we kept we that was our plan and the plan actually came to fruition and everything actually worked out so uh <laughs> it was a, a massive undertaking we were under the leadership then of uh, former county clerk Beverly Kaufman. Uh, we had an uh, uh, election staff that was experienced, and so we were. Uh, it was uh, able to get done. We were able to do it, and throughout the state and among 
peers, election officials, the county clerk and our elections administrator became, you know, uh, legends. <laughs> they were able to conduct an election uh, in such a sort of period um, before election day and to be able to conduct it without any issue. So uh, it was a... <laughs> It was I participated in that because I was dealing with the uh, with issues pertaining to uh, the media, the public, the, the federal government, Department of Justice, and those sort of questions that come uh, that are always uh, people saying we want to make sure that voting is fair and and equitable to all communities, and that was the commitment uh, that county clerk had with the public, and uh, we were able to pull it off. Tell us a little bit about your community work. Well, one of the uh, I started out, and uh, some people may uh, may know the name um, of Leonel Castillo. Leonel Castillo was my mentor. He uh, we started out organizing a political action committee called Latinos Unidos. We used to meet every Saturday at Los Morcajetes, Mucho Mexico, on the wayside. And, uh, and then we continued on to a location that was called Vedias, which is our navigation. So we would meet every Saturday. We would have a guest speaker. We would organize block walks after the meeting. Uh, we would conduct voter registration as an organization, Latinos Unidos, at the citizenship ceremonies. This is going back 1989, 1990, all the way through when uh, I worked with the Naleo Educational Fund. We would uh, do this work. Uh, trying to get people registered to vote, trying to get people uh, to know um, the main components of the elections process. And that's something that uh, we used to do through the Political Action Committee, uh, Latinos Unidos. So in uh, 1993, uh, the Naleo Educational Fund came to Houston and I was hired to be a volunteer coordinator. And this is 1993. Leonel Castillo was hired as the director. Wow. Uh, and let, 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 let's pause there because the late, great Leonel Castillo really made a huge impact in our community. Tell us a little bit about what his legacy was for that. He was great at finding people. To uh, He was an ideas person. He had ideas. And, and uh, um, so um, he would always was great at when he met people like me, which, you know, I, I was younger back then that he would, uh, actually communicate with you and, and, you know, instill confidence in that, Oh, here's a very important man. And, you know, he's here with me and he's willing to take the time out to talk to me. And, uh, then that's how I got to know him. So he did this, this sort of thing for a lot of people here mm. in the Houston area. He created, I would say, a lot of leadership, a lot of the leadership in the Houston area, and some of them uh, uh, maybe at the end of their careers, but they were they were introduced into the process by Leonel Castillo. So not only was he the first uh, Latino candidate that was elected at large in a major city in the United States, he was controller of the city of Houston way back in the early 1970s, and through that position. When Jimmy Carter became president, he was looking for people to place on his kitchen cabinet. So Lionel was offered the job of uh, commissioner of the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is now called ICE. Uh, so he he was the director of, of that uh, 
of that agency. Then he came back to Houston and he got involved in politics. Uh, but, uh, you know, he accomplished a lot in his life. And I think he was probably most proud of, of uh, his accomplishments of getting young people involved in the, uh, in the political process. So uh, I'm one of those people that he, uh, that he uh, nurtured. And here's what happened. He was director of Nalil from March of 93 till about October of 93. And he, he decided, you know what, uh, I'm going to do something else. And wow. uh, <laughs> so it just happened that, you know, uh, he brought me on. Next thing I know, I'm director of the Nalil <laughs> Educational Fund here, here in Texas. And uh, so I'm given the task. And the task was to help legal permanent residents uh, uh, with the U.S. naturalization process, helping them become U.S. citizens and then incorporate them into the American political process. So, Which year was that again? Uh, from 1993 all the way to 2004, I worked for the Nileo Educational Fund. But before then, I used to uh, volunteer with a program that uh, a council member in East Houston created to help people with the citizenship process. So I was, I was uh, teaching citizenship classes for uh and for that organization and helping people uh with the uh with the application process and uh we used to do all of this you know at a nominal fee or no cost at all i mean me I'm, i was a volunteer doing it so uh, uh it was great. mainly mainly helping people and we helped a lot of people in fact i can tell you when things were normal or uh, I could go to an HEB, a grocery store, or like one of these uh, major uh, lumber, you know, the big companies that sell uh, construction equipment. I could stand there in the front door, and sooner or later, somebody will walk up to me and say, hey, you helped me become a citizen. Wow. I could, uh, you know, I could go to any fiesta. It was like that. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, do you remember we were, what was uh, the population at the time? Right now we're at 45%, which I think is an I undercount. Think back, yeah, back then, I'm probably in the 20s, probably. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, but here's the, anyway, so I, I cre we were doing voter mobilization. The mission of the PAC was to increase the participation of Latinos in the American political process. So then when I went to Naleo and I was doing, uh, we were funded to help with the citizenship process. And they told me, you know, that's the mission, but you can do other things that are related to that. So one day, one day, uh, Marcelo Marini calls me and he says, hey, oh, we, I want we got to pause there. Shout out to Marcelo. <laughs> you're like, you're like giving us a course on Mexican history. Well, he's Argentine, but on Latino history in Houston. He had a public affairs show for Telemundo. And he used to say, uh, he said, hey, I want to do my show about voter registration. And uh, Blas said, well, you know, Marcelo, we go to the citizenship ceremonies every every other, every third Friday of the month to, to distribute voter registration applications. And we set up a table and let people know that they can bring their application back to us so we can turn it into the uh, to the voter registrar. And uh, so he said, oh, yeah, great, great. So he showed up with his crew and he nice. did his show. He did his show from the, from the uh, citizenship ceremony. And uh and on TV, and then he created a banner that said, you know, the organizations he worked for and Naleo, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, that was 1994. And then in 1995, the uh, general, uh, the uh, 
director of public affairs for their competition said, hey, do you do voter registration? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, you know, it just happens that I do conduct activities. And he said, great. And they wanted to conduct the uh, the voter mobilization campaign. So that's how I, uh, I looked at the ratings and I noticed that one was way bigger than the other, and I said, you know, I think I, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, I love you, Marcelo, but, but uh, I'm gonna go over here for now. But I still work with you. I'm still open. We're working with everybody. So we started a mobile voter mobilization uh, campaign through Univision, and that's where it started. And we created a model, and the goal was to create components to share with the with the Latino community about the voting process, the rudimentary elements, like one, what do you have to do to be able to vote? You have to register to vote. What do you need to to register for? You need to be a US citizen and be 18 years of age and not have any issues. And so then uh, what are the important dates for uh, in the process? Well, the voter registration deadline, one, the uh, ballot by mail, deadline if you qualify to vote by mail the early voting periods and then the election day so we would conduct activities along with the election calendar and and uh, the folks at the at Univision told us you create the activities and we will cover it that's so that's cool. what we did so it was very new could, though is it fair to say that that was yeah it was at the time well at the time i never really thought about it but now looking back yeah it was <laughs> and uh and we, we created this model that by 2004, uh, Univision, a- after I left, uh, Univision, and, you know, we talked about it here locally with uh, my friend at Univision, Grace Olivares, that we needed Sh- to, shout to, out to encourage. Grace Olivares, who's shout out to Grace Olivares. Shout out to Grace. That uh, we needed to get the national Naleo. Uh, 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 leadership and uh, the national Univision leadership to to uh, to get together at least not Naleo but at nonprofits. The idea was to get nonprofits connected with Univision at the national level and conduct a national voter mobilization campaign. So that actually happened. So uh, she was able to write a letter to uh, her boss in Miami. And they were able to use the model that we created with the help of Grace here that Nalil created locally, the voter mobilization program, and they adopted it as a national model. So it was, uh, you know, those are things that I did. And when I was actually doing them, I never really thought about, you know, <laughs> here's I'm, I'm doing something new or something significant. I was just doing it because I thought there was a need to do it. And uh so, you know, it's uh, someday maybe I'll r- sit down and actually write about that part. Um, but uh, that's how it happened. So anyway, one of the things that I think you wanted to get at was when I was doing all of this, I, I based the work on the population, right? Okay, so we're so much of the population here in Harris County. And like for now, for example, now uh, the census or the American Community Survey says Latinos comprise 45% of the population in Harris County. And uh, part of the reason that people say they get a sense that Latinos are not voting is because they look at the percent of the population and then they say, well, I guess on election day, you should be 45% of the vote. 
And that's just not the way it works. That's a great point to begin with. To begin with that, number one, if we're 45% of the population, we're not going to be 45% of the electorate. And why not, Hector? Break that down. Because, as you know, uh, the Latino community, uh, there's, it's young. One, it's very young. And two, uh, the, the uh, status, citizenship status or lack thereof has an impact on who can actually participate in an election. So according to the census here locally, I think we might have gone up to 28, but uh, it is holding steady based on it's probably going to it's going to change probably next year that we're going to know more but the the census says that uh latinos comprise 27 percent of the harris county citizen voting age population that means that only 27 percent in here uh uh if everybody was registered to vote 100 percent all uh race and ethnicity all the groups Latinos would comprise 27% of the registered voters, not 45, because 45 is the population, not the people who actually qualify to register to vote. And of course, because of age, that may be an issue as well. We're a very young demographic. So all those factors are involved. That's that's a great way to begin the discussion. Right. So now let me give you another point. So when you actually look at certain data currently on the voter registration roll, you find out that Latino, or not Latinos, but Spanish surnames comprise 23% of the voter roll. 23% of the voter roll. So if you were to say, uh, we, if we were at max, uh, we hit our number, which would be 27% of the reg- voter registration roll, right? So if you actually divide 23 divided by 27, it actually shows that Latinos, that uh, uh Qualified to register to vote is in the 80 percentile. It's that not as bad as people. It's not as as uh, as bad as people make it out to be. But there's uh, there's reasons why people. There's just a lot of narratives that are not based on fact. They're based on uh, political biases that people have. For example, there's this narrative that says that okay, well, you know, Texas with the Latino population. One group says, well, they're hoping that Texas turns blue, right? And then there's uh, Texas has been a red state as, you know, Republican state for a long time. And a lot of people are always uh, betting that because of the Latino vote uh, that Texas is going to turn blue. So every time there's an election and Texas doesn't turn blue, uh, the people that are pushing <laughs> these narratives, they say, well, Latin, it was Latinos. It was the fault of the Latinos because the blah, blah, blah. And that's not I, I actually as a Latino, uh, I actually get irritated when I hear that, because that's not the reason that that uh, uh, one party or another controls Texas. It, typically, the majority of the voters in any state in the union are still not Hispanic or not African-American and, and they're not Asian. They are what the, the census called non-Hispanic whites. They determine who wins or loses. And it's just the, in the recent history, there haven't been a lot more. Well, let me put it this way. The vast majority of non-Hispanic whites have been voting Republican. That's why Texas is, is, uh, is still a Republican state. 
But as that age group ages out under the voter rolls, things are changing. And we've seen the examples in Dallas County and in Harris County, how the, the demographics in these counties are changing and the, the percent of the, the white population continues to decrease in the uh, and when you look at the voter roll, it's reflected on the voter roll, on the list of registered voters, that now uh, um, the uh, the citizen voting age population in Dallas County is about 57% uh, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian, comprise about 57, 58% of the citizen voting age population and it's the same thing here in Harris County. Let me add something not- to let me add something to this too, because you've made an important distinction between a narrative that's convenient for partisan politics versus a narrative that accurately breaks down the Latino community. And you did a good job of saying, well, actually, if you look at how many Latinos are probably eligible, Latinos are stepping up to meet that. The other thing I would point out, too, is you did a very good job of breaking down specific demographics per city, because I think when I hear these narratives of complete change from one party to the other, I never see that followed by a delineation of how specific parties or candidates will cater to one group or another. And one way that I see that, and that's the reason for the show, is that, well, Immigration isn't the only issue. It's a very important issue, but there are other issues as well that would right. cater to that demographic. Like, let me point something out. For example, um, a lot of people, when they speak about how the Latino vote broke down, they, you know, they look at exit polls or they look at here and it says, well, Latinos in this election, 70% of them voted for for this party and 30% voted for that party and they're like disappointed and it's like Latinos are not monolithic <laughs> you know uh, there's all kinds of Latinos here in, in the United States and you can't expect them they have uh, varying life experiences and you can't expect them all to be to share the same history that bounds them together and that to, for one side or the other then, then, so the, the people are very critical because there's uh, Latinos are not monolithic, and and there's always like a quarter percent minimum, a fifth of the vote will always go uh, conservative, a fifth. Now, why? Well, I don't know, but that's just the way it is. You're, and you're, go just, up- you're just saying by the voting trend of numbers, that's that right. seems to be that, the issue. Let, let, let me add something else to that as well. And and again, we probably... But, uh, let me just finish this, that thought. That, that uh, you know, any any candidate that receives 70% of the Latino vote, you would say, man, that's great, right? That is a great number, 70 to 30, right? But for some reason, some people expect this for us to be 90% one way. And if that's not the case, then they say, well, blah, blah, blah. But they never pay attention to the fact that when it comes to non-Hispanic whites, that the breakdown in that group is about the same as Latinos, but in the other direction. They're conservative. 75% of the vote goes to conservative candidates versus 25% to not conservative candidates. And when they say, that, well, that's just the way it is. But when Latinos do that, somehow we're guilty of something or 
you know, there's something wrong, but nobody sees the other number as or construed it in a negative way. And, uh, and what happens is that's, that Latinos in the end get blamed for uh, certain election results. And people don't, don't pay attention to the fact that every presidential election, there has been an increase in the Spanish surname voter count. In 2016, the vote grew in Harris County uh, about 140,000 by about 140,000 voters. It went from 1.2 million voters to 1.3 million voters. And it grew by 140,000 voters. When you look at the Spanish surname voter count, it grew by 70-something thousand voters. That means that if you take a 140-vote increase, and you divide 70 into that, Latinos were, were, were uh, responsible for half of the, uh, the increase in Harris County. But nobody looks at that. That's huge. They basically, basically, if your side didn't win in Texas, they, you blame Latinos. <laughs> you know? right. And then, of course, got to remind people we're recording remotely. We heard some phone ringing. We're going to let the phone ring because you gave us a great fact. And <laughs> this is the new era of radio. But... I also want to point out that I'm so happy that we can bring a fact like that to light because I don't see any political party really laser focusing on the communities and that can go for any issues. About half, about half of the Spanish surname registered voters are under uh, 39 years of age, I believe. Ah, so, so if, if, the Latino 18 to 39 year olds don't vote, it has a great impact on turnout. Or if they decide, you know, I'm not going to say don't vote, if they don't find anything on the ballot compelling enough for them to go and vote, uh, it impacts turnout because the, uh, the older folks are, you know, they're smaller in, in, in the Latino community. We have the smallest a number of folks that are 65 years of age or older of all the uh, the uh, ethnic groups. And, uh, and that has an impact because we know that older voters are, tend to be the ones that actually show up to vote for the most part. And they can be reached by the tactics and with the messages that both parties are used to using again and again and again. But with that fact, then it's helpful for these both parties to say, hey, guess what? You got to change your approach because here's the exactly. Well, let me so back in 1999 or so, I think that's when I was I went uh, to D.C. and I was on a panel at the Brookings Institute uh, pertaining to engaging young people in the voter process or people in general in voting and uh, in the electoral process. And I I. I one of the stories that I told was, look, in my um, experience in talking to people and watching uh, candidates talk to people, I always noticed that when candidates speak to Latinos, they're always promising promising things to them or to us. Uh, for example, like, I have something to give you, like they're in control. When candidates speak to non-Hispanic whites, the narrative is you're in control. I will make sure that the pocketbook issues are addressed in this election and I will be your, your watchdog. In one group, you're making them feel empowered. Candidates make non-Hispanic white feel empowered. I said this at the Brookings Institute and 
people were kind of like quiet. Nobody said anything. <laughs> it was like, but at the end of the program, people were walking up to me and like, oh man, I like what you said, blah, blah, blah. No, I said, well, point. there's a disconnect here. People need to pay attention to how they speak to us. Not that everything they say or not going to say is going to resonate, but at least so show some some respect that you feel like you as a voter are in control that's why it's called democracy like <laughs> because the people people power too often uh, the language that is utilized to speak to minorities not just latinos but minorities in general is always not what it is when they, they speak to other folks those are some really fantastic observations we're going to have to have you come back to talk about more of this how can people read Hector De Leon's perspective HectorDeLeon.com I write about data and I also write essays some of them are philosophical some of them tell stories it's reflections and thoughts about uh, what the data shows we've been talking to Hector De Leon author of Hector De Leon's perspective and an advisory board member for Latino politics and news thank you Hector thank you Ready. Right.